exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down I'm C.J. Layton coming to you from inside the Phantom Radio Studios in Lake Wales, Florida home of the premier radio bowling talk show. Long ago, Bowlers Journal International called Phantom Radio a pioneer in the field of bowling podcasts because the show was regularly scheduled at the same time each week. The late Kegel owner, the great John Davis, told Len Nicholson to start this program because, quote, people need to know what you know, end quote. This PBA and bowling writer Hall of Famer has now recorded over 1,200 shows and has featured over 425 guests since 2002. 20 years plus of bowling knowledge, story sharing, and true expertise. Phantom, we need to know what you know. So Phantom fans, here's your host, Len Nicholson, the Phantom. Well, thank you, CJ. And a reminder that Phantom Radio is presented by the Kegel Company. Well, Phantom fans, this week we are continuing our popular tribute shows and helping us as a frequent guest that you all love. He was a PBA Rookie of the Year, and he became the PBA Player Services Director for 22 years. He won a PBA title and more than one ABC Eagle. He's in the PBA and USBC Hall of Fame, but he's our true historian of the PBA and bowling. So here he is again, the great Larry Lickstein. Hello, Larry, and welcome back, Bards. Well, thank you so much, Phantom. Great to be with you again. Uh, I know you have so many great guests, and I'm just proud to be with you. Well, we're proud to have you, and I'll tell you what, it's the number one show I know in podcasts because I get so many emails, I'm going to have to hire an assistant, and I got no money, so I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> Listen, Bards. As, as you know, uh, last week we just touched the surface, uh, the, the surface, uh, talking about our friend Butch Gearhart, and we could talk about him for hours too. So we're going to have one more show. That's this week. But I want to continue by telling a quick story about Butch and just how he was, his personality and whatnot. But he was the loosest guy in the world. Uh, he didn't like to practice. And so one week we're in Detroit, and they added on 16 lanes to this facility. So now it was 48 lanes. It was three 16s. There was one over the garage, one on the side, and one in the back. All three installations were done at different times, and they were all totally different. So the practice session is going on, and I don't see Butch, and I'm room with him. I run back to the hotel, and there he is asleep. I says, Butch, wake up. You got to come down and practice. Nah. I'm too tired. We had that great party the other night. I'm exhausted. I don't want to practice. I says, you got to, man. I know you need a check. And there's three different sides. You got to learn them. No. He says, I, I'm too tired. I'll figure it out. I says, no, you won't. There's three separate dungeons, man. You better get down there. No. I pull him out of the bed. He's skinny. And he's nice fighting me and everything. And he says, wait a minute. He says, you know something, Lenny? I says, what? He says, the tour would be great if you didn't have to bowl. 
<laughs> so later on when I started putting stuff together, I wrote a little book. And that was the title of the book. And that was crazy. But <laughs> this show, you know, we tended to start out in 2002 by passing along knowledge and information. Larry, I know he knows everything about the 60s because he was out there. He was a bowler on the tour. And that that section of time, the 1960s, are going to go down in history uh, for many reasons, especially the influx of lefties on the tour. And as I said, Larry was out there. He's an honest guy. He knows exactly what was going on out there. I wasn't doing the lanes. I was in the background. Eventually, it turned out to be that. But Larry, you had a bird's eye view of what went down in that part of history. So... If you don't mind, give us a little background and some history about the PBA in the 60s. Well, thank you so much, Len. Um, the 60s was the unique decade for a number of reasons. It was the first major growth period in the sport of bowling with the advent of the automatic pin setter that came in in the middle and late 50s. For instance, uh, the automatic pin setter made its debut in the Hartford area in 1958 at a place called Ten Pin Bowl. Uh, within a year or so, the Meadow Lanes was uh, built in Hartford, and they started to spring up all across New England. They were cookie-cutter houses. And if you had any credit, AMF and Brunswick would build you a house for very little money up front and fund you well, with 20 years of financing. So the boom starts, and of course the PBA tour starts in January of 62, which was one of the main objectives of the bowling industry was, well, if we're going to sell bowling centers, we better get it on television. And, of course, Frank Esposito, who founded the PBA with Eddie Elias and Chuck Pisano and the 33 members, were wanting a tour, you know, from 58, 59, 60, 61. And finally, in January of 62, Eddie Elias inked a deal with Rune Arledge and ABC Sports after the October of 61 event at Paramus, which Roy Lown won an unknown left-hander from El Paso. So the very first PBA televised event with $15,000 for first place, which was unheard of at that time, was won by an unknown left-hander who beat an unknown right-hander named Rich Robinette. Now, everybody was waiting for the Budweiser's, Carter and, and, and Booth and Lillard and Smith and Salvino and Hoover and all these greats from the 50s, Fazio and, and Billy G and Bob Strampy, and a lefty wins. Well, I, I watched that show. I was 12. And from that day on, I wanted to be a pro bowler. So think about the mindset of a young left-hander across the United States that starts to see left-handers on television. Does it sound similar? Young two-handers 12 years ago watching Belmonte? <laughs> on television, it's the same thing. In the words of Yogi Berra, it's deja vu all over again. The styles are different. Styles are different, right? Equipment's different. The scores are different. But it's the same scenario. A lefty gets on TV, and all of a sudden, a lot of lefties want to try and, you know, get good. And a two-hander gets on TV, and all of a sudden, a lot of two-handers want to try and get good. So the influence of television, obviously, is very important. So what happens in the 60s is uh, Lown wins, and little by little, some left-handers come out 
and try the tour. And there's a left-hander out of Florida named Bill Allen who comes out and automatically he starts to win. And by 1965, he is a factor. And then Dave Davis comes out in 1967. He becomes bowler of the year. And right at this time, 65, 66, 67, the left-handers along with Ski Foremski are making telecasts and along comes Butch Gerhardt. Now, Butch Gerhardt is as loose as a goose. He don't know how to squeeze the ball. I mean, I don't think he ever squeezed the ball in his life. He might drop the thumb a little early and thumb down it and miss it a little. He was so loose and so good at what he did. He was very young. He was very athletic. He had great eye and hand. He was very accurate. He did not spray the ball all over the lane. He didn't need a lot area. But when you give him his look, you know, he could drift, you know, 10, 12, 14 boards from right to left, go up the lane, hit the ball hard. The next thing is, what happens when you're young and you win? And that's what happened to Butch Gerhardt and Ski and Dave and Bill Allen. They get confidence. The more confidence they get, the more they believe they could beat anyone in the world. Now, I'm watching this as well. I'm watching every telecast. And you see these other guys starting to come on, Don Glover and, and uh, Bob Coladas. You start to see more and more lefties, Johnny Petraglia and myself, Mike McGrath. And all of a sudden, they're in the hunt for bowler of the year and winning majors. There was a streak in 69 where Jim Chesney, who was left-handed, won the Masters. Mike McGrath, who was left-handed, won the PBA National Championship. In 1970, Don Glover won the Masters, and Mike McGrath won the national championship again. And then all of a sudden, doomsday hits on January 6th, Tuesday, 1970. Earl Anthony is bowling his first practice session since 1963. So the 60s bring this group out of left-handers simply because of television. No different than today with the two-handers. Now, Butch comes out. And right off the bat, he's a factor. He's not a factor on the ABC telecasts, but he's a factor in the summer stops, interestingly enough. He doesn't win any national telecast shows, but he wins on the summer tour, which did not have stepladders. So he's got a lead, and he's got to win. You know, after 40 games, he's got to be the tournament leader. And all of a sudden, by 1970-71, he's got four titles, and he wins in Winston-Salem. In 72, I had led it in 71, and Johnny Petraglia had won that one. Butch come out a year later. This was, I think, your, set, your first full year of lane maintenance. The lanes were different. They were much tighter, but Butch could yank it up. He could line up like Anthony. He threw a little more ball than Anthony. He had a little more speed than Anthony, but he could he could lay it down and not, and not swing the heads. He could lay it down on eight and hit eight at the arrows, which a lot of us couldn't do unless there was hold area. In my case, that was that was the killer. If I had a yank five, I wasn't good at it. McGrath was good at it. Gerhardt was good at it. Earl was obviously great at it. But Butch is in this environment created by television and the PBA. And in my mind, when I started to see the two-handers, I went right back to the lefties. It's different, you know, it's, it's a different environment. But those kids wouldn't be doing that if it wasn't for Belmonte. And Gerhardt wouldn't have been doing it if he wasn't watching Bill Allen and Dave Davis. So it's the same identical scenario, different environment, different styles, different hands. But that telecast is what does it when you're a kid. And then the dreams start. You know, you start to dream that I want to be a pro. Or 
in baseball, it's the same thing. How many kids in the fifties wanted to be Mickey Mantle? You know, how many kids and now in Houston, you know, want to be Justin Verlander or Jose Altuve? And, and if you look at it that way, why wouldn't it be that way in bowling? Why shouldn't it be that way in bowling? Obviously television brings a, a large audience. And with that audience, you get some curiosity and you get some kids that start to dream a little bit. And the next thing you know, there they are. Now, when you look at the styles today, what's interesting is you're starting to see styles today on that telecast that are extremely unique, like Gerhardt's. Anthony Simonson's two-handed game is unique. He doesn't throw it anywhere near like Belmonte, not even close. But you watch the results of this young man's thought process, and you realize, you know, he's so good at what he does with changing equipment speeds, tilt speeds, that, you know, he's gifted. And Butch was gifted. Butch could beat anyone in the world when he was on his shot. And that's when you know a guy's a great bowler. They don't have to be bowler of the years, but when you give them their sniff and they win or they make a telecast, or obviously in one game you could obviously bowl real good and lose, even though he only won five times, he could have won 10 or 15. He might have been a ball away from TV four or five times. He might have been a ball away from a win on television four or five times. So when you see a guy with five titles and you take eight deliveries, hypothetically, that weren't strikes, and you say, what if they are strikes? Sometimes they could be eight shots away from greatness. That's all it takes. You know, if they're the wrong eight shots and, and three of them are in majors, like a TSC or a, a Masters or a U.S. Open, and you go from fourth to seventh, you don't make TV versus you did. You have a chance to win. Butch was one of those guys. Probably not a good enough record for a USBC or PBA Hall of Fame, but certainly, certainly close. You know, he had um, two firsts and two seconds with Eagles, which is important. I don't know after that. I don't know about his telecasts and majors. I don't I don't recall any, but again, I could be wrong. There could have been one or two in there in the early 70s. Uh, in the old days, you could pull up that information on the PBA website, but uh, since Bolero took over, they haven't had the archives up. In my case today, I really wanted to look at some of Butch's stats from the 60s so I could talk about them, which would have made this uh, conversation a little more interesting, but I can't find his stats anymore. And obviously his stats are 55 years old. Yeah. You know, you weren't, you know, you weren't even out there yet when, when he was winning, you know? So, and I wasn't out there in, in 66, seven and eight, when he first started winning, I was not on that tour yet, but he was, you know, there with Bill Allen and there with Dave Davis. And then of course, when Earl came in, that was the, the a very strong left-handed contingent, you know, from 69, uh, to 75, uh, that, that little five, six year stretch right in there, uh, you had some monsters on the left side and Butch was obviously one of them. You know, the more you talk about him, you start to realize, you know, what a, what a wonderful person he was. Uh, in my case, uh, you know, I, you've brought back a lot of memories for me and the fact that we can talk about him publicly and, and let your, uh, your listeners hear our thoughts. I wish People could have seen him that are that aren't you know that are too young and know and knew him. You know they like I said the other day you would have loved you could fall in love with him and he was you know he you know he didn't look like Omar Sharif you know he didn't look like a movie star, <laughs> but he had this he had this way of when he talked to you and with this this sort of smile you had to love the guy you know he was just one of these cool guys and boy he 
he uh, he is missed by a lot of us that knew him. You know, well, I'll tell you, I think about him all the time. I roomed with him for three or four years, and it was the greatest time of my life rooming with him and Godman and Glover. But I love that history lesson you gave. A lot of people never even thought about that. But there was another reason that part of history was, you know, as the bowling centers and bowling became more and more popular, proprietors started hassling the USBC, the ABC back then, because they had a rule where you had to come in every year or every two years to resurface their lanes. Well, the proprietors didn't want to close down because they had a land office business. And they hassled the ABC. We don't want to close down. We've got a good lane, man. Our lanes are beautiful. They're taken care of. They're recoded all the time. And they basically uh, talked to the USBC so much and hassled them and pressured them so much. The ABC said, all right, in 1963, you don't have to resurface every year. You can resurface whenever you want to. Well, huh, suddenly maintenance went down the tube along with bowling being more and more popular, had a lot more play. The lane started getting damaged, especially on the right side, because as it turned out, about 87% of the field uh, of all bowlers are right-handed. So the left side of the lane didn't have much traffic. And these bowling balls would put a lot of damage on those wooden lanes. And over a period of a few years, the left side became a little bit nicer than the right side. And when you give an advantage to any little group of guys, especially on the tour, they're going to take advantage of it. So as time went by, as Larry mentioned, the lefties started coming out. They started bowling better. They started dominating. <laughs> the righties really got all upset. And then it all happened in 1969, 1970 at, at San Jose when, when Larry Nickstein led a field in the finals and all 16 finalists were left-handed. Larry won. It wasn't because of Larry won. It was just imagine, the, you know, the, I mean, the Webbers and Burtons and all those guys were throwing backup balls because they couldn't compete because the left side was nice and smooth. The right side was rough. They demanded having a lane maintenance program, and that started in 1971. And as you know, and you pointed it out, as time has gone by now, there's been another group that has come along different bowlers' names, different styles, but mainly we've got different lanes, too. we got synthetics. Back then, we had wood. This new new, new uh, development became along with, from Belmo, and, and as you said, you pointed it out, <laughs> a lot of guys copied that and said, hell, if they can do that, I'll do it. So you go to the bowling centers nowadays and watch a lot of kids are doing that, and they get good at it, and there's nothing wrong well, with it. It's, it's it's amazing if you draw the parallels. Uh, obviously, it's a different environment. You know, we're talking synthetic and we're talking some real high-tech engineered bowling balls. But the mindset's the same. Uh, you know, you can give them anything you want out there. But when you look at the, the what happened in the 60s with the influx of lefties because of the lanes were so fragile when it came to high lineage. So the lanes get beat up on the right. Righty's got to make 10 and twos, and lefties can stand in the same spot, look at the same target for three months. Well, obviously, they're <laughs> going to get locked in. That swing's going to get locked in. Their touch is going to get sharp. Now, obviously, the better lefties could move around, and they had to if you bowled for a living. But it's still, the left side was smooth. And obviously, anytime you're dealing with 
something with a bearing point, you know, that's 128th of a, an inch and uh, it's touching the lane or whatever it is, you know, two, three thousandths, whatever it is. And it's going to get affected. Now they call it topography, of course. Back then, there was no such thing as topography. You know, back then it was the surface. They were all resurfaced. Uh, they were leveled pretty good because you could level wood by resurfacing them. You can't do that with a synthetic lane. That topography is in there because right. of the cribbing. So obviously you can't change topography today, but you could change the level of the lane back then. And Danny Galicio knew how to do that better than anybody in the world from Utica, New York, with the Galicio sander. And he had it so he could dial it in. He could dial in lanes in and make them level long before lasers. Our game has always been environmental, and it has been since the 30s when there was shellac in it, the two-finger with the middle finger in there, and they just spun it right up 10. You know, you look at pictures of Marino's follow-through and Verapapa's and the great styles of that generation. They, they, they just yanked it right up the pipe, right up the second arrow, <laughs> and they never missed the pocket. They didn't have strong balls. And the pins, you know, were, were bottom heavy and, and, and flat bottoms. So, you know, eight tens, five sevens, four five sevens, weak tens. They'd hit the pocket 30 times in a row and shoot 580, you know. <laughs> yeah. Now you, now you hit it 30 times in a row, you're liable to carry all 30. One thing I do know when it gets back to Butch, in his environment and in his day, in his youth, his body, his prime, his ability could beat anybody in the world on any given tournament. And there were many tournaments where after you guys became lane maintenance directors, you and Sammy, and where I would say lanes were very equal, maybe not every week because you had to become a miracle and a magician worker where you couldn't possibly do that every week. No one could. You didn't have the technology. You had a spray gun. You had to try your best in your heart and soul to get it close. But I know, especially after I became player service director, there were many weeks where lanes were dead equal. There's four or five lefties in the finals, 19 righties. One would sneak the TV. Another one might be close. And that's when you could see a guy like Gerhardt, who was a very good bowler. And in many events, he played very well when the lanes were tough on the left. He could grind. He could, he could get it to the pocket. It was a question of carry. Of course, we didn't have good carry because we didn't have that type of equipment that created carry and created entry angles. So you had to do it with your accuracy. You had to do it with your speed. You had to do it with your lane reading ability. Not that they don't today. They still do today, of course. But they didn't have that carry power back 50 years ago. I mean, we, we didn't have – nobody knew what a messenger was. A messenger <laughs> no. for me was somebody that knocked on my door that wanted money. That's, <laughs> that's what a messenger was when I was a kid. You got a message. You got a message. Pay your bill. Today, a messenger in the headpin goes back six backs and forth six, six times. Looks like a ping pong ball. And, I mean, it's not the bowler's fault. You can't blame them for loving the game. No. They just bowl. Their, their, their whole life is bowling today. You see a 14-year-old kid out there two-handed, he starts out with a 120 game, and within six months he shoots 180s, and within a year he's averaging 210. You can't blame the kid. The kid's gifted. The kid's got some eye in hand. He's got great equipment. He's got the right lane condition for that equipment kid goes out starts striking at 17 they want to be a pro bowler and that's okay that's the way it was with me i wanted to be a pro bowler at 17 so you know it's so tough because a lot of times you know the, the people that get down on the game 
will blame bowlers, you know, a lefty, a two-hander, uh, somebody unorthodox, you know, somebody that, that does something that most people can't do. Uh, the sad part about it is it's not their fault. They just love it. You know, if people would understand they just love to bowl and their style works, leave them the hell alone. Don't be knocking the crap out of them. And the problem with that is it creates such a negative environment. If these guys, let me tell you something. If people saw Gerhard bowl today, they they would they would run him into the ground because nobody threw it like him. Nobody drifted that far from right to left, Lenny. You know that, and I know that. I never saw it in my life. Not like that. Exactly. So but, listen, but he was great at it. He could repeat every single shot, and he could hit a half board. He could play eight and a half and hit it. So you know, it was a different age. I wonder. I often wonder what he would think now. You know, being that he's been gone forty-one years, watching what goes on now. He watched somebody like Buttrip watch that ball come off that kid's hand with that wrist position and those revs and that back end movement. You gotta shake your head and say, "Wait a minute! Wait a minute!" He's actually running, but he can't run. His <laughs> feet are the fastest feet on the tour, but he can't run. You can't teach that style. But in his body, in his mind, and what he sees, he's just obviously one of the one of the best left-handers in the world the last five years, you know, he's definitely ranked whoever else is great on the left out there. And it might be him. And who else is there on the left? I don't know. Let's see, but I'm getting hit over the head by my producer. We're way over time. What I'm going to do is I'm going to schedule another show with you because what about Butch, because I got some more stories I want to tell and I want you to tell a couple more, but you know, the old clock and all says we're way over time and our sponsors are going to kill us. But you know, I want to thank our sponsors, Storm Bowling and Brad Edelman, and also our friend from Michigan. We mention it every week. His name is Dave Kowalski. And last week, he was inducted into the Michigan State Coaches Hall of Fame. So congratulations to Dave. Bowling fans, we're going to be back again next week. And I'm going to schedule Litchie again somewhere in the next few weeks to tell some more Butch Gearhart stories. But for Phantom Radio, this is the Phantom. When you're down and troubled And you need some love and care And nothing, well, nothing is going right Close your eyes and think of me Soon I